Well, if you would, turn to John chapter 4. We need a little bit of a review because really what 4 is doing is, is hinging on what we've seen thus far. Chapter 2 was the first sign, the first miracle, which was what? The water into wine, yes. It's what a group of college kids would ha hope happens in their dorm room. A water to wine. No, not really. That's awful. Uh, turn to John chapter, keep your finger in John 4, because that's where we're going to read today. But John chapter 20, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. John chapter 20, verse 30 says, Now Jesus performed many miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded. But why do I record these, John says? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's what we're going to see with the miracles. We saw that with the one in Cana. We're going to see the second miracle today here at the latter part of, of John chapter 4. <clears throat> but what's interesting in, in 2, we have the miracle at Cana, cleansing of the temple. And 2.18, something very powerful is stated, which we're going to revisit here today. It says in 2.18, the Jewish leaders responded, what sign can you show us? Well, he just did one for you. He's going to do another one here in four. All right, so those two signs really kind of book into this material that's stuck in between. What do we see in between? Is a savior for all people, right? We saw Nicodemus in three. We saw a Samaritan woman in the early part of four. And last week we did a, a comparison of the two individuals. It's fascinating. And now we get to this uh, latter part of four, verse 43. And John records, and after the two days, that's the two days he was in Samaria, he departed from there to Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Galilee is where he spent the bulk of his ministry. In fact, we, we have groups stand right on the shoreline at Capernaum. We tell you, put your, keep one arm here and one arm this way. That little quadrant on the north side of the Sea of Galilee is the bulk of Jesus' ministry. Right there. That's it. You got Capernaum, you got Magdala, and everything in between. And that's his home country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen all the things he had done at Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves had gone to the feast. What did they, what did they do? Did they hear or see? They saw. How did the Samaritans become believers? What did the text tell us? Did Jesus perform a miracle at Jacob's well? No. They heard. They heard it from the Samaritan woman. They heard it from Jesus. This is vastly different. His own people, 2.18, want to see a sign. They want to see. He came to Cana in Galilee. Oh, there it is again, right? I mean, this is a little... You know, there's not a light, there's not a McDonald's in this town. There's not a light stoplight. This is a little burg, all right? And, and, and the first miracle that John records is there, and the second one is here. When he had made the water wine in Capernaum, there was a certain royal official whose son was sick. When he heard that Jesus had come back from Judea to Galilee, he went to him. He didn't even send servants. And he begged him to come down and heal his son who was about to die. 
So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. That is not a compliment. Right? He said, he's rebuking, and, and, and notice, by the way, it's in the plural. This guy comes, but he, he kind of delivers a, an edict over all of the people, the Galileans. Sir, the official said, come down before my child dies. I mean, the man doesn't even hear the rebuke. He repeats his request. And Jesus told him, go home, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, it's key, and set off for home. While he was on his way down, his slaves met him and told him that his son was going to live. I mean, this guy is really sick, all right? We don't know what was wrong with him, but uh, uh, I'm allergic to garlic. And I had an episode on Sunday that was, <laughs> I was doubled over for about 24 hours. So uh, I thought that I was going to re relate with the boy here. That was awful. Anyway, so we asked him. That was free. From the time when his condition began to improve, and they told him yesterday at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father realized, it's the first time the man's referred to as the boy's father, that it was the very time Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed along with his entire household. Jesus did this as his second miraculous sign when he returned from Judea to Galilee. Why was he in Judea? He was down in Jerusalem for the festival, right? For the Passover. That's why he, was, he came back through Samaria. And now we see this event occurring. Well, let's set the scene because this is vital. And I'm sorry, this map is not in your notes. But if you look where the circle is, that's the quadrant we're in. I've, Capernaum Falls there and not far away, about 15 miles away, is Cana. It's significant to our storyline, which we'll get to in a minute. Do you see the territory in orange? When Herod the Great died, and when did he die? 5-4 BC, right? That's why Jesus wasn't born in 0 or 1 AD, right? He would have had to been born 5-4 while Herod the Great was still king. Herod dies, and when he dies, he bequeaths his estate to three sons, um, he had to change his will a couple times because he kept killing his own sons. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> Literally. <clears throat> he killed numerous wives as well. But, uh, you know, uh, yeah, details. Who, who cares? Um, <clears throat> he pickled his one wife or kept her in a vat because he, he loved her and he regretted he killed her. But, um, <clears throat> and drowned another son. And anyway, uh, he had to appear before the emperor for killing his sons. That's how bad it is. And they said, I would rather be his host than his huios. I'd rather be his son than his pig. And pigs were used for Roman sacrifice. So that tells you a little bit about Herod the Great. Anyway, he has three sons. One of the sons gets the, the prime real estate, which is Jerusalem. That's the yellow part that you see there. And it would go further down in Judea. He doesn't last very long. He's as incompetent as they come. Uh, he's not a chip off his old daddy's block. And he's removed. Um, but in the orange belongs to Herod Antipas. He's the Herod that we know of in the Gospels. He's sometimes referred just as simply as Herod. He's responsible for taking John's head off, <clears throat> right? Uh, he's the one Jesus will appear before during the trials or the hearings uh, before he's crucified. That's Herod Antipas, primarily Jewish territory. In fact, I got a coin there that I, of his that's in your notes. Uh, notice on the one side, uh, the, the, the right uh, in the picture, that is a reed. And Jesus said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? 
a reed shaken by the wind, a king dressed in fancy clothes. He's referring to Herod Antipas. Uh, or did you go out to see a prophet? That's John the Baptist, one like Elijah. <clears throat> the reason I mention this, it's very significant. Because in the purple is the third slice of the inheritance. And that goes to Herod Philip. That's predominantly Gentile territory. When uh, Jesus goes across and he casts the demons out of the demoniac, the pigs go into what? <laughs> the demons go into pigs, right? Jews don't raise pigs, even today. Much to my chagrin, you can't find bacon in Israel. Not very much. So the purple belongs to Philip. The orange belongs to Herod Antipas. Where's Capernaum? It's right on the, tor- the, the border. It's a significant town. That's why you're going to find a tax collector from Capernaum by the name of what? What's his name? Matthew. That's why you have a tax collector. That's why you have royal officials there like this guy. This is a strategic town. It's also on a major highway. So we sometimes think, oh, this is a backward bumpkins little fishing village. No, not Capernaum. You've got Roman officials here. You've got tax collectors here. This is very significant, and it will become Jesus' headquarters, his, his base in this area, as we see in the other Gospels in particular. So here you have this Roman official, someone extremely significant that's come and asking Jesus for assistance. Uh, here's a better view of Capernaum. This is the synagogue ruins today. It's, Capernaum's fabulous. All you need to do is open up your Bible and start pointing. There's the first century synagogue foundation under the force. There's Peter's house, which I think is a 10 out of a 10, historically accurate. You see all of these things in the text right there on, on spot. It's fabulous. Capernaum is one of my favorite locations. And here's this guy from this royal official. Now, this is going to blow your mind. I don't think he's a Jew. I have a lot of people say, oh, yes, Jesus' condemnation is of the Jews living in Galilee. But... I don't think it's of the, I think this guy is a, is a Gentile. In your notes, under the second paragraph by the coin, I say the ethnicity of this royal official is uncertain. That Antipas employed Gentiles, we know that. Two, Jewish rulers despised Herod Antipas. They hated him. He built his capital, Tiberius, over a graveyard, and no Jews would come settle. He had to bring in other people to settle into the city uh, so that he'd have citizens. Gentiles, we know, served in his political offices, as we see, and the royal official was not in Jerusalem for the Passover. So most likely he's Gentile. One commentator suggests that while his ethnicity is unclear, John may have wanted his audience to envision this man as a Gentile to continue the contrast between the faith of the Samaritans and the unbelief of his own people. Even if he's Jewish, it would be an abomination to the people. They wouldn't have liked him at all. It's like a tax collector because he's, he's aligned himself with Rome via Herod Antipas. Does that make sense? <clears throat> and so here you have Samaritans earlier in chapter 4 that believe God's word. What a contrast to the Jews who want a sign represented by the religious rulers. And then here you have a guy who's probably a non-Jew who in verse 50 says he believed the word. Very significant, I think, going on here. As we see in your notes, I mentioned this two times. Uh, we'll, we'll move on here. Uh, two times this guy asked for Jesus to come, and twice he reminds Jesus that his son is about to die. 
He has taken great efforts to go 15 miles by foot to get to see Jesus. Notice the request. He said, when he had heard that Jesus had come back from Judea, he begged him to come down. It's an interesting phrase. It's the same phrase used in chapter 3 and later in John to refer to the crucifixion, to come down onto the cross. Interesting. I don't know. Uh, The Son of Man coming down to serve as a sacrifice. Chapter 3, chapter 6. As we note, Jesus' rebuke in verse 48, it's plural, isn't it? He said uh, to him, unless you people see signs and wonders. He's not referring to necessarily the royal official. It seems strange because earlier in the text, we're told that they welcomed him, right? In verse 45. So how do you explain that? They welcome him and yet no prophets without honor in his own country. How do you reconcile those two? Any thoughts? I know it's early and we've not had much coffee. Uh, I give you my two cents. It's in the notes. It's at the top of the page of page one under verses 44 through 45. It says, closer observation reveals that the welcoming is contingent on what Jesus has accomplished not upon who Jesus is. Did you catch that? Not on, on, it's, it's on what he's done, not on who he is. And it's such a contrast to the Samaritans where Jesus doesn't perform any what's. It's all who, right? And what do they declare? What do the Samaritans declare of the village people? He is the Savior of the world, right? They caught it. And all they had was the first five books of the Old Testament. They caught it. As I mentioned down at the bottom of your notes, the Samaritans welcomed Jesus because of what he had said, and the Galileans had welcomed Jesus because of all that he had done. It's a vast difference, and it's, it goes back to chapter 2, verse 18. What sign are you going to show us? Just recently, I was meeting with a couple, and they said, well, we've been praying long and hard for just to Jesus to the Lord to reveal this to us. <clears throat> and I looked at them, I said, I think you can stop praying. It's very obvious what you need to do. The Lord has stated it. <laughs> it's right here in the text. Um, it's like, I think of Sproul telling the story of the lady who kept coming to him and saying, or came to Sproul and said, I keep asking the Lord to forgive me, but I just don't feel like he's forgiven me. You know, and he looks at her, you need to only ask the Lord one more time for forgiveness. And she goes, what? He goes, yeah, because he's already told you, as far as the east is from the west, he'll forgive you. Why do you need a sign? (laughs) He has stated it. Believe it. It's the word, right? That's the whole point. But we all, I think, well, at least I do, I can fall victim to that. You know, I want to see something, visuals, the Gideon syndrome, right? We want this to happen. So, you know, if all the lights are turned green, I know I got to go to the mission field. I don't know. That's the crazy, I, I hear it, it's this craziest stuff. When it's right here, it's all right here. He tells us plain and clear. Uh, you know, I understand certain things, but it's, it's just crazy. At the bottom of your notes, I have a quote from Carson, who's on his, D.A. Carson, on his commentary of John, which is probably one of the best commentaries. I know Paul would agree with me, Paul Drick over here. 
He writes, Jesus detects in the royal official a welcome and faith that desires a cure, but that does not truly trust him. Indeed, the royal official, in Jesus' view, exemplifies what is wrong with the Galileans as a whole. It's interesting as you look at the miracles through John's gospel, faith is not a prerequisite, contrary to some faith healers today. Faith is not a prerequisite. Look at the guy who gets his eyesight restored. Well, we're going to look at that. It's one of my favorite scenes in John's gospel. The guy doesn't even know who Jesus is as we move along. Well, in verses 51 and 52, we see the man going back after believing what Jesus has told him. And some disciple or some scholars argue, well, that's why he waits till the next day because he's had faith that Jesus will have healed his son. I don't think so. Uh, we know culturally you did not travel at night in this part of the world. And it's 15 miles away by foot. So you're looking at moving from Cana to Capernaum uh, and it's already one o'clock, right? One o'clock in the afternoon is when he makes the request from Jesus to heal his son. That's in the afternoon. He would have stayed in Cana uh, the night and then traveled the next day to get back to Capernaum. So that explains uh, what's going on there, and, and that's in your notes as well. But we see, again, twice we are told Jesus' words, your son will live, right? We see that in, in earlier in verse 50. We see it now in verse 53. The father realized it was the very time Jesus had said, and here it is, your son lives. It's so significant. It's significant to the text. Michael's in his commentary, this is there on page two of the notes, the healing highlights Jesus' power to give life, whether physical or eternal life, which is so key to this section, right? He, Jesus comes, chapter two, is a miracle at a wedding feast, cleansing the temple, those messianic overtones, I am the savior of the world, demonstrated in a dialogue with Nicodemus, seen with a Samaritan woman. And now visualized here, this is the giver of life. This is the one who is the creator of the world. And as Michaels goes on to say, and this will be the overriding theme of the chapters to follow. And he is so correct. It's interesting. Jesus displays himself to the Galileans. And you would think, wow, this is it. The Jews are finally going to believe. They asked for a sign. They got another sign. It's wonderful. Chapter 5, we begin to see opposition from the Jews to the point they want to kill him. It's an indictment against his own people. I am the Savior of the world. I've come. And no wonder Jesus says before he even starts into this journey in chapter two, 3, excuse me, verses 22 through 24, he says, he knows the hearts of the people. Right? End of chapter 2. He knows the hearts of the people. And so... John, the writer, bookends this by saying this is the second sign. The first one's in Cana that he records, the second one, and it bookends this first section of John's gospel where Jesus presents himself as the Savior of the world. And you already have a clear understanding where this is going to go, <laughs> even if you didn't know the storyline. You know that his own people are going to reject him. In chapter 5, that's exactly what happens. Confusion in chapter 6. It just keeps spiraling out of control as you move through John's gospel. But question on this text, oh, isn't this great? So powerful. Tying this together. Questions or comments on it? 
Well, let me give you a few things. Yeah, rock. Yeah, this is a rock's question pertains to what's written in under verses 51 and 52. Some scholars argue that his lack of urgency demonstrated his confidence. In other words, the guy didn't go back to Capernaum until the next day, the royal official. And so you ask, why did he wait? And some scholars say that's because of he believed God. I think rather it's simply logistically, you didn't travel at night. It was unsafe, especially being a royal official who's hated by people. I just, I, I just think so logistically. Well, no, because he, I would argue he went to great lengths to see that his son be healed. Um, I think logistically it just couldn't happen. It's kind of like a, if you fly out to LA and, uh, you know, you, you say, I'm going to be there. I'll be back. But you, you, you got to wait till the next flight. You can't just go whenever you want to go. Um, yeah, I guess he could have traveled at night. It would have been very unwise. Well, let me give you three things uh, concerning faith. And what is faith? I even give you a quote at the beginning of your notes by Stott, who says, faith is a reasoning trust, a trust which reckons thoughtfully and confidently upon the trustworthiness of God. Faith, as I mentioned, letter A in your notes, rests securely in God's reputation, doesn't it? Look at Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews 11, verse 1. Let's just look at these texts. Hebrews 11, many of you know, is the hall of faith, right? All these giants of the Hebrew scriptures who walked with God, believed in God. But it starts out in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. Unlike Kierkegaard's argument that faith is a blind leap in the dark, (laughs) it's far from it. Faith is rooted in who God is, right? Samuel Rutherford, it's in your notes, states, my faith has no bed to sleep upon but omnipotence, meaning all-powerful one. (laughs) Isn't that great? Our faith rests in God's character. And he has his character at stake, by the way, for us. Could we say faith is believing in that which is invisible? I think so, yes. Believing what is invisible, though uh, I, I, I think you could argue God reveals himself in ways that we see the visible, someone getting healed, etc. But I think, yes, uh, in God's character is displayed in creation, etc. So we see at least side effects of it, you might say. James 1, look at James. Yeah, I'm not so sure I would distinguish sometimes the two, but yes, I know you, many scholars do. Uh, yeah. Yes, sometimes you believe and it happens. Sometimes the belief is based, though, on what we already know of God. Uh, James 1 is an example. My brothers and sisters, look at this, verse 2. Consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. We've looked at this as a group of men 
Let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete. If anyone is deficient in wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously, and he must ask in faith without doubting. Why? It's rooted in who God is, right? That's why Kierkegaard thought he was going to save Christianity, and he's out to lunch. <laughs> um, and, and, and notice that it's being confident and sure of these things. This isn't uh, willy-nilly or, or doubt being applauded. In fact, the one who doubts it is condemned. We don't, uh, now, James isn't saying we don't doubt the circumstance and the outcome. Certainly, there's doubt there, but we don't doubt the source of our faith, right? That which is sure. The problem with many evangelicals is their theology starts with man and ends with God. The problem with many evangelicals is our theology starts with man and ends with God. It needs to start with God and end with man. Um, I'll be careful how I say this. I had a couple of former colleagues that wanted to start with philosophy and move to theology. That's a horrible place to be. We don't start with ourselves. We start with God Almighty. And that's why then in, in Hebrews 11, you have individuals who are willing to sacrifice their own lives because they're rooted in God. It's vital. And secondly, not only is it rooted in God's reputation, it's also faith demands trusting in God's Word. We see that time and time again in John's Gospel, don't we? We saw it with the Samaritans who didn't have a miracle to hold on to to believe. They simply trusted the Word of God. The same with the, um, <clears throat> the royal official. Look at 1 Peter. Look at this text. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21. I love this passage. You know that from the empty way of life and inherited from your ancestors, you were ransomed, not by perishable things like silver or gold, but by precious blood, that of an unblemished spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifested to us in these last times for our sake. Through him, you now trust in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God's word is what is rooted in uh, Wells in his book, The Courage to Be Protestant. It's a great book. Uh, on page three of your notes, there's a lengthy quote. And forgive me for doing this, but I'm going to read it. Scripture does not merely contain truth. It's not a sublime statement of our understanding of God. That's Reader's Digest. All right. It does not mark it does not mark the forward progress that the human spirit has taken. It is not the result of the questing human spirit reaching out for something absolute. It's not a human guess. It's not just an approximation of what is there. No, it is instead the result of the supernatural work of God in the human writers. And what we know now have is the truth. It's not partial truth or incomplete truth. It is the full accurate, complete revelation of all that God wants the church to have. The written truth is fully sufficient for the church's life in this fallen world. Isn't that great? I know, and I, you've heard the analogy, but you get the letter from your girlfriend that you're dating and you read through that letter a hundred times. Oh, look at this. It's so wonderful. Yeah, she loves me. You got a love letter right here. 
right? We stand in a, in a place that is absolutely amazing. We have a closed canon. We got 66 books. The Samaritans only held to the first five. The Galileans, they got the Old Testament. They didn't have the new. We've got the complete canon here. And yet I meet guys that are never in the Word. You know, it just shocks me. And that's why I applaud you're doing this. I've got, you know, they know so little. I've had the opportunity to teach adult classes at Indiana Westland for some of their business programs. And uh, I'll teach philosophy and Christian thought. That's a real upper. And they just love taking that class. <laughs> that and underwater basket weaving. And so they're in the class and they hate it. And you're, you're, it's shocking to me. In fact, the first time I did it, I was so appalled. I said, okay, you're going to have to, this was a New Testament survey class. I had to make them memorize the books of the New Testament. They didn't even know the books of the New Testament. These are adults sitting here. They didn't know half the story. You go, we are in serious trouble. This is a love letter from the cosmic being, God Almighty, who's intimately wanting us to know him. You know, you can pray all day. His will is here, right? This is what He's revealed. This is what He's directing us in. May we be men of the Word. Faith demands trusting in God's Word. Finally, faith results in the privilege of witnessing God's power and His provisions. Hebrews 11. Turn to Hebrews 11. Back to that hall of faith, that list. I want you to see something I'm just going to pick one of the characters. It's Moses. Look what it says about Moses in verse 24, 11, 24. By faith, when he grew up, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be ill-treated with the people of God than to enjoy sin's fleeting pleasure. It has pleasure, by the way. <laughs> That's the problem. It's fleeting, though. He regarded abuse suffered for Christ to be greater than wealth, the treasures of Egypt, for his eyes were fixed on the reward. There it is. Why? Because Hebrews 12.2 tells us the joy we as believers have. Hebrews 12.2, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set out, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat in the right hand of the throne of God. This one came and dwelt among us and is inviting us to participate, right, in the things of the Lord and to, just to witness firsthand God's almighty work. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, <laughs> some of you are smiling. That's all he knows is Thomas Watson. I love Thomas Watson. But this quote, he says, growth of faith is seen by doing duties in a more spiritual manner when an apple hath done growing in bigness, it grows in sweetness. I love that. It's working out our salvation with fear and trembling, allowing, Lord, increase our faith. Um, may we trust your word, and may we rest in who you are, right? That's what I love about, uh, uh, we're going to see this as we move into chapter 5, a very powerful scene uh, in knowing who Jesus is. I love it. Yeah, Kyle. It's easy to have faith when everything's going well. I think about Joseph. Most scholars think he was in prison for 14 years. 
where, O Lord, are you? (laughs) And and to maintain the course and keep the faith is amazing, right? Uh, And so during the times of suffering, et cetera. And and what kept Joseph going? I have no doubt it's his understanding of Yahweh. It's his understanding of God. And we could go around this room and hear testimonies of how God was true, even in the dark waters. And you all know those times. Father, thank you for your word. This little episode nestled at the end of chapter 4 in John's gospel is so powerful because in it, it's a reminder that we, we, we don't need to be looking for um, smoke, <laughs> some certain green lights of the stoplights. No, what we need to be doing is trusting your word and trusting your character. The one who promised you, O oh Lord, promised to, to walk through the valleys with us. You promised to be faithful. And Lord, we must confess, especially when things get dark and we're walking through the valleys, it would be nice to have a sign. <laughs> It'd be nice to, to see some tangible way in which indeed this is the route we're to be taking or, or that you're still there. And you've said, hey, I've already told you I'm there. Forgive us for not trusting. And Lord, help our unbelief as the disciples even prayed. Help us to see the bigger picture. Give us eyes that see your hand. And and may we be reminded of the promises and truths of your word. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And Lord, I know there's a few men in this room who've shared with me privately that they're in those dark valleys. And I pray this text this morning would just speak to their hearts to realize, no, the God of the universe came, you, your son, came and dwelt among us. And you've promised not to leave us nor forsake us. And at this very moment, we can come to your very throne room because our glorious Savior is sitting at your right hand, interceding at this very moment on our behalf. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Be with the men this this day. Guide them. Uh, Thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen.